This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 6, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act sounds good to be sure it's meant to protect pregnant workers from discrimination. But what are the practical incentives created by some of the law's requirements and open-ended invitations for new federal regs? And what policy changes would deliver tangible benefits to workers without new federal mandates? Cato's Vanessa Brown Calder comments. Women who are pregnant or are new moms often drop out of the workforce. That's not necessarily a problem. It's good to have a mom with you at home when you're a tiny baby. You know, people's priorities change as they get older, as they have children and that sort of thing. Nonetheless, there are working women who want to get right back to it and have children and and they get right back into the workforce. What should we know about how employers think about the likelihood that one of their critical employees could get pregnant and just vanish? Well, you know, I think that that is something that employers do sometimes think about and worry about. Unfortunately, there is some new legislation. It was actually passed at the end of 2022 as part of the 2023 Consolidated Appropriations Act. And that legislation is called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which sounds very good. You know, the legislation is, it's well-intentioned. I, I think it's safe to say it's meant to protect pregnant workers from their employers during this vulnerable time that you're talking about, um, where, you know, often there are challenges. There are sometimes, you know, there's doctor's appointments, there's various um, symptoms of pregnancy that women deal with or medical concerns that come up. And during that period, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act requires that employers provide pregnant workers with accommodations or changes to the work environment or the way that things are usually done at work. But it leaves that those accommodations pretty well open-ended, which from a cost perspective creates some, of course, uncertainty for employers, makes actually hiring and employing pregnant workers potentially more concerning or more worrisome than it may have been in the past. And so that's something that I have worried about a little bit since the introduction of this legislation and the passage of the legislation. And then more recently, of course, with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's new guidelines on the uh, Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So to the extent that the legislation itself leaves it open-ended, this is effectively an invitation for a regulatory agency to fill in that open-endedness with uh, its own ideas about what accommodations ought to look like. That's right. Um, And so the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has uh, taken that invitation and they have run with it in their new proposed rule. They go through and they detail some of the possible accommodations that pregnant workers may qualify for, including things like, you know, working remotely, frequent breaks, reserved parking, light duty work, even suspending essential job functions altogether. There are also certain accommodations that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission deem de facto reasonable. So these would be reasonable in most every case and hard for employers to, I guess, uh, argue with sort of um, things like allowing an employing an employee whose work requires them to sit 
to stand during the day or vice versa. If it requires them to stand, then they can sit, allowing an employee to take breaks as needed and that type of thing. The regulation, the proposed rule that the EEOC put out, it actually, rather than really narrowing and tailoring um, the scope of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, I think in some ways it actually has expanded the scope substantially, broadened the scope, broadened the benefit duration, even broadened the eligible population of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. As a result of that, um, I worry that it increases the associated risks of the original accommodation legislation. So thinking like a rational employer, if essential job duties are suspended, if light certain kinds of work just aren't done, if there are you know changes we need to make to the parking lot, there are a bunch of different other accommodations that need to be made. A rational employer, not thinking dis- in a discriminatory fashion, not poo-pooing the idea of women in the workforce. It's It's been the case for a long time, but thinking like uh, a, a profit maximizer, compelling those kinds of accommodations would make you less interested or at least a little leery about hiring a woman who is likely to be in that position going forward. Right. Um, I think that's that's sort of a logical train of thought that you just set out there. Most employers, un- understandably, they don't budget for workers who cannot perform the essential functions of their job for, in this case, up to one and a half years across the regulations pre- and postpartum accommodation periods. And employers who feel like they cannot absorb the cost of that regulation, that regulatory requirement, could decide that employing pregnant workers or workers that could become pregnant poses a significant risk to the company. And I think, you know, that would be understandable because it is a costly regulation. If we look at the Americans with Disabilities Act, actually the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was was patterned after the Americans with Disabilities Act in some ways, even using the same language as the Americans with Disabilities Act. And there's a variety of research that indicates that the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, it made disabled workers more costly to employ. And it also made the associated costs more vague and open-ended. And so it resulted in various adverse employment effects for that population, which is, I think, sort of tragic, honestly, um, because, again, of course, that was the population that the ADA was intended to help. But there's research on, you know, declines in disabled employment, um, lower relative earnings, uh, slightly lower labor force participation rates, reduced ability to find a job for uh, disabled workers. And all of those things are, of course, uh, things that you would hope legislation like this would avoid doing. We've talked a lot about workplace flexibility and the ways in which a lot of our regulatory structures just lean against it. And uh, in, in many ways, actively, the practical effects of a lot of this regulation is to uh, limit workplace flexibility. What if 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 the feds were truly interested in helping working women, uh, moms in particular, future moms to be, as well as respecting the fact that employers 
have decisions to make, and some of those aren't really super pleasant decisions, what would what might that look like? Well, I think we can look at the ADA a little bit, just as an example, uh, or the effects of the ADA and what's happened since. So the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed more than 30 years ago. Um, most recently, employment has actually been ticking up and unemployment has been ticking down for disabled workers, which is interesting. I don't think that that has anything uh, much to do with the ADA. In fact, I don't think it really has anything to do with the ADA at this point at all. But instead, I think improvements in the broader post-pandemic labor market recovery and the increasing availability of flexible or remote jobs are likely driving this effect. So, for example, remote jobs allow people with disabilities to avoid lengthy commutes or inaccessible commutes, um, allows them to manage their work environment, maybe meet you know, medication or other medical needs privately, among other advantages. And many of these things are relevant for pregnant workers as well. Um, I'm sure that you have talked about in with many different guests uh, various options for increasing the availability of remote and flexible work. But I think there are policies both at the federal level and at the local level that could make a big difference on this front. Um, I'll just give a few examples. One is through reforming the Fair Labor Standards Act so that private sector workers can take their overtime compensation as future time off rather than as pay, which they're not allowed to do. Uh, currently, I think that could be really significant um, for workers in allowing them to have more flexibility um, and more time off, frankly, if they want more time off. Um, and of course, local labor regulations, getting away from the federal level, local labor regulations, they govern everything from shift scheduling to work week and overtime rules, worker lunch break schedules. They make negotiating flexible work difficult. Those laws include associated legal and financial penalties often for employers, and that deters employers from innovating on their existing business model in ways that could increase employee flexibility. Of course, there's home-based business zoning rules that limit workers' ability to be entrepreneurial and start things from home um, and work remote, um, and occupational licensing rules that get in the way as well. So there's a lot of things that could be done. And I think that all of these things would be much more effective at actually promoting the flexibility and the opportunity to work remotely that would really benefit both pregnant workers and disabled workers as well. The bigger picture here, it seems like, is when you're in an employment situation and uh, things are going fine between you and the employer and something changes in your life, uh, something that you planned that there might be some necessary trade-offs that have to be made, uh, that costs that have to be absorbed. And it seems, at least in this example, that the, the regulatory system operating as intended for the most part is trying to cause the employer to absorb all of the costs or as many as possible associated with that change. Right. And I think that's probably somewhere where I would disagree with some of the advocates uh, of rules like this. I certainly do think that there are trade-offs that have to be made. You can't expect that the employer will bear the burden of you know 1.5 years of uh, a worker not being able to accomplish the, the uh, essential um, 
functions of their job. Um, you know, that doesn't seem particularly fair to the employer. And so I do think that there are changes on the employee side that have to be made sometimes, and we can make it easier for them to, you know, insure themselves against those, the risks that they're taking as they're making changes in their personal lives and with their personal obligations, for instance, by making it easier for them to save um, for situations like this through universal savings accounts and that type of thing. So I think that there are options there to to smooth transitions and make things um, easier from an employee side as well. Vanessa Brown Calder directs Opportunity and Family Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. <laughs>